Revelation chapter 1. This is now the seventh week in a series on suffering. Uh, it ends next week. That's the plan anyway. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's been useful. I think this morning is going to be particularly important. Um, the whole thing has... I've enjoyed preparing these. It's been exhausting. It's been, it's been you know, this is a heavy, heavy topic to be dealing with and sometimes some of these messages have been able to find help in certain places and others I just haven't and, and this one um, this morning about being a companion in suffering could find very little about that could find very little practical uh, how do you actually help people who are suffering uh, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of discussion of that out there but um, hopefully there'll be something here. And, and if you think you're going to get like 35 tips in order for how to help someone who's suffering, you know, pray this and then read this and then do this. And you're not, you're not going to get that. Uh, what you will get more is a, is a posture of heart and attitude that will then bring help to those who are suffering. So I want to read just a verse in Revelation 1. And we'll be bouncing about a wee bit this morning. I hope you have your Bible. Um, We'll be going to Proverbs 25 after, after Revelation 1. Whenever I was preparing the first message on this topic, we were in Revelation 1 and we were looking at the vision of Jesus that he gives to a suffering church in Revelation 1. And as I was reading it way back a couple of months ago, this, this little phrase just, you know, those moments when something you've read over and over again, you've just, it's just passed you by and suddenly bang. It says in Revelation 1 verse 9, John is um, declaring who he is, who is the one who has actually put these things on paper. And he doesn't demand a title. He doesn't say, I am Pastor John. He doesn't say, I am the Reverend or the Very Reverend or the Canon or the Very Reverend Canon Professor John. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And I just love that phrase, companion in suffering. I'd never, obviously I'd read it before. I love this book. I love this chapter and I'd read it many times, but I'd never actually just been impacted by the weight of those three words, companion in suffering. I don't know if you've ever, well, I'm sure you have, if you're human, you've, you have felt the frustration or the sense of inadequacy when you know somebody is suffering and you want to help and you just feel you haven't a clue what to do. You feel inadequate, you feel helpless, you feel blundering and clumsy and awkward. Uh, you have no idea. So what, what I want to look at this morning is what does it mean to be a companion in suffering? We all want to be companions in suffering. We will all suffer. Guaranteed. We will all suffer. And we will all at stages in our lives be close to others who are suffering. How do we be companions in that suffering? First of all, in Proverbs 25, here's what you don't want to be. Um, have you ever... You ever been sitting somewhere for a long period of time in the same position and your foot has gone to sleep? Ever had that? You know, and it's time to get up 
and everybody else is getting up, but you can't move because your foot is just, there's no feeling in it, there's nothing happening at all, and you know if you get up and put weight on that foot, you're going down. And it, it says in, in Proverbs 25, with just with the, the wonderful wisdom of, of Proverbs, uh, verse 19, like a bad tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. Like a bad tooth or a lame foot. Now, you will know you've got a bad tooth or a lame foot as soon as you put pressure on them. If you get up with that foot that's gone to sleep because you've been sitting too long in the same position, you're going down because you put pressure and you put weight on it and it won't hold you up. You bite down on a bad tooth that maybe has had a very low level pain, but you bite down on it, you put pressure on it, and bang, it hurts. And you immediately don't want to bite down on it anymore. Your appetite goes rather quickly. And the writer of the Proverbs says, when we rely on someone who is unfaithful in difficult times, that's what that person is like. They're like the bad tooth. They're like the lame foot. As soon as you put pressure on them, they give way. They crumble. We don't want to be people like that. We want to be people of firm foundation so that when others who are suffering need to just lean on us for us to take the weight a little bit, that we don't crumble. And whenever you, you watch you know, sort of disastrous things that are happening on the news in terms of, of natural disasters, freak weather, earthquakes, the houses that, that fall usually have no foundation. If a house has a foundation, frequently it will stay upright. The roof might come off and a few bits and pieces of damage might be done, but it'll stay upright. It's those that have no foundation that go down quickly. And in times of trouble, what we need to be to others is we need to have a foundation in our own lives that doesn't come overnight, that comes through years of walking with God. And we have that foundation. And when they come and they lean on us, we stay upright for them. We are faithful. This, this word faithful in, in Proverbs 25, 19 is not about God's faithfulness. It's about the faithfulness and reliability of a friend. And then the very next verse says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day. I've never done that to Linda, but I can imagine the wrath would be, would be rather potent. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on soda. Lots of fizzing and violence with that. Some versions just say vinegar poured on a wound. Is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. <laughs> Have you ever been with somebody who is suffering and you've tried to superimpose your joy onto them? Not good. Don't do it, okay? Don't come singing happy songs to those who are suffering Allow them to suffer. Paul says in Romans 12, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And a guy called Justin Taylor commenting on that verse said, Don't you dare rejoice with those who weep. Don't try to make them be joyful when they're not joyful. Allow them to be heavy hearted. Create an atmosphere and a place where they can be as upset as miserable, as down, as depressed, and as heavy-hearted as they actually feel. Don't try to superimpose your joy on them. That, again, the writer of the Proverbs says, that's, that's as good as going up to someone who's freezing on a freezing cold day and saying, here, give me your coat. It is just completely unwelcome, completely unwelcome. 
take these things on board. We want to be reliable companions in suffering. We don't want to, to bring a, a, a sort of silly, flippant asper, you know, sort of attitude of, of joy and, and giddy happiness into situations that are dark and very, very difficult. And suffering happens in community. Suffering happens in community. It should not be an isolated thing. The church is not meant to be a bunch of lone rangers who, who now and again get together for the Christian Lone Ranger Conference once a year and then go off and do their own thing again. We're meant to be in community. And thinking again of our songs and our singing, you know, don't, don't, don't rejoice with those who weep. There's not many songs that invite people to suffer. There are in the Bible, a heck of a lot of them in the Psalms, an awful lot of them where just people are, you know, the psalmist is being plain with his lament. You ever read the Psalms and you think, David, man, you were up and down. You were all over the place, mate. You know, one day, you just God's so wonderful and God's so close. And the next day, it's like, where are you, God? Can't find you at all. How long is this going to go on for? I love the, the, the honesty of his, of his heart, but I don't see that enough in our modern music. I'd like to see it more. I can find it in other music. I can find it in secular music. I can remember preaching at Stephen's wedding. I preached a two-point sermon, but I'll not ask for a summary <laughs> in case... In case it's gone. But I preached the two-point sermon at Stephen's wedding. And the, and the sermon was, love gives and love stays. And I quoted a song, a secular song. Now, Christian, the, the guy purports to be, or, or says he's a Christian. I don't know, I don't know him. Like, but uh, one of the lines in the song says, I'll be with you through the dark so that you do not go through the dark alone. And I'm thinking, why don't we sing hymns like that? Why don't we sing songs like that in church? Why, why is it out there in the sort of secular realm that we, we're hearing this? And another, another little band that I was listening to loads last summer. And uh, again, a Christian songwriter who used to be involved in the Christian music scene and then just got fed up with it. But you can still hear a lot of his faith coming out in his music. Uh, it's a wee band called Judah and the Lion. And the guy sings, when your back's against the wall, you're not alone. I love that. That's Christianity. That's, that's God. That's companionship in suffering. But we don't sing like that. We, we let... The world sing like that. Three responses that people will have to suffering friends. The first one is anxiety. You feel this incredible pressure to say something. Now come on, you've been there where someone is, is telling you a lot about really difficult stuff. And what's going on in here is you're trying to think, whenever they stop talking, I need to say something really, really good. Have you ever felt that? You know, and, and you're starting to sort of, you're uncomfortable and you feel pressure and you maybe start even to sweat a little bit and you're, you're reaching for all your, your Bible verses and, and you're just, you get really, really anxious in that position. And then we think to ourselves, are we good enough to help this person? Am I actually good enough to provide help? Am I good enough to be a companion? We define success as saying the right thing at the right time in the right way. That's, that's the, the success criteria we have. We're anxious and we're just worried. Will I say the right thing? Am I good enough to actually help in this situation? And while they are emptying their heart to us in pain, we're just absolutely consumed with anxiety about what we're going to say. And one of the things that, that, that I mentioned there is we have this thing. We say, I'm not an expert. I'm not good enough to help. And I was listening to a guy yesterday talking about the difference between professionals and amateurs. And he explained what the word amateur means. And you know I love my words. And I love knowing where the words came from. 
And what the word amateur actually means comes from Latin. Love a wee bit of Latin. Kenny Twyville taught me Latin. Didn't like it back then, but I do now. The word amateur comes from the Latin word for love. And someone who is an amateur does it for the love of it. I was talking to a guy on, on Friday night whose son races hot rods. And he was showing me pictures of the hot rods on, on, on the phone. And I can remember hot rods at Shamrock Park a long time ago. These are different. These things were serious cars. Like, they were gleaming and really well turned out, really impressive. And, and this, this kid races these hot rods all around Northern Ireland and, and occasionally further afield. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, does he get anything if he wins? And his dad said, no, no, no. He said, no, no, he's doing it for the love of it. He's doing it for the love of it. Don't worry about being an amateur when it comes to helping people. Because do you know what? They really need someone who is helping them for the love of them. So don't be thinking, I'm not a professional. I don't know enough. I haven't been trained enough. Sometimes amateurs are what people need. Because amateurs are doing it out of love. Now, on occasions, they need professionals as well. They need both. But don't be putting yourself down and thinking, I'm an amateur, I can't help. You see, one of the problems with the anxiety approach, the whole fear of, am I good enough, and will I know what to say, and will I say it right? The problem with anxiety, if you feel anxiety when you're with someone who is suffering, you're focusing on yourself. The whole time that person is emptying their heart to you, you're thinking about you. I'm thinking about me. I'm, you know, the whole time I'm sitting thinking, right, what am I going to say? What am I going to quote? What am I going to tell them about? What story will I tell? What book will I get them to read? What? That whole time, I am not focusing on the person who's talking to me. I'm focusing on me. And the anxiety approach is the wrong approach. Second one is arrogance. And just, just you know, on the anxiety thing, set yourself free from having to say something. That's really important. That's really important. Listen to someone and whenever they stop talking, if there's silence, there's silence. Set yourself free from the pressure that you have to say something whenever they've finished. You don't. You don't. For them, the, 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 the healing in that conversation is the fact that you listened. The fact that you were there. The fact that you cared. Not some genius little sound bite that you'll come out with after they're done. Arrogance. Don't want this, obviously, either. Arrogance is, is whenever you're listening to someone and within five seconds, you've got it all sussed. <laughs> you know what you're going to say and you've got all their problems sorted out and you're just chomping at the bit and, you're, and, and you know, you're listening to them, but you're sort of inside, you're thinking, you know, would you just shut up so I can tell you how I can fix you? Because you think you know exactly what's going on or you've been through something similar or whatever and, and you're just chomping at the bit to get telling your story. And you know what? Maybe the person does not want to be fixed. Maybe they just want to be understood. They just want to be heard. They just want to walk away from the conversation with the relief of, of having expressed themselves and shared their burden with someone that loves them rather than coming away with a hit list of five things that they need to go and do in order to get it fixed. There may be a time and a place for that. But if you want to be a companion in suffering, if you have that arrogant mindset where you are just bursting with, with advice, you're not doing them any favors. And again, you know what you're doing? You're focusing on you. You're thinking, well, I know what I'm going to say here. I've got this all sorted. And, and whenever this conversation's over, 
this person's going to go away thinking I'm the boy because I gave them exactly what they needed. Remember at Alpha Marriage a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were talking about, about communication in the video and, and the, the lady that, that's on the, 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 the Nikki and Sela, is it Nikki and Sela that, that presented? Sela, Silla, Silla, yeah, Silla. She, it's spelled like Sela, but Silla. Silla said um, she really hated it whenever she was talking to Nikki and he just kept giving her advice. From a sincere heart, just kept on giving her advice instead of just listening to her. And I, I didn't talk to Linda about this immediately, but I, I recall the conversation a couple of weeks ago where something like that happened, where she was telling me something that was bugging her. And I was just thinking, right, this, it wasn't about me. Uh, I, I was just thinking, right, you, you, sh- you shouldn't let this bug you. This is the way you deal with it. Just do this. Just forget about it. Just, you know, advice, 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 advice. And really what you just needed was to vent and just release what was in her. Arrogance is just constantly trying to fix and give advice. We don't want that either. To be a companion in suffering, we don't want the anxiety mindset because that's focused on me. And we don't want the arrogant mindset because that's also focused on me. What we need is we need to give people attention. This is the right response. Because when you just give them attention and you completely forget about what wonderful thing you're going to say or how you're going to fix them, then the, the focus is on the person who is suffering. It's not on you. You just relax, you sit back in the chair, you enjoy your coffee, and you listen, and you give them attention. And if it's appropriate, you, you, you make them comfortable that they can say more and more and more and pull out as much as, as they want to, to give out. That is the right posture to have. Focus on the person. Not on you. Do you understand how the first two options, the focus is all on you? But if you give them full attention and let them bring out what they want to bring out. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I told you what I want to give you here is is not a, a list of do's and don'ts, but more a posture to have. And I know that probably frustrates you a little bit. And yes, things like that frustrate me from time to time because I want to have four things to do in every conversation with a suffering person. But... That's not effective. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Now I want you to think about 2 Corinthians. You might not be that familiar with it. We did dip into 2 Corinthians a few weeks ago. And 2 Corinthians is, is the most biographical of Paul's letters. It's the one where he goes, he's very, very blunt about what he has suffered. Very blunt. He talks about shipwrecks. He talks about stonings. He talks about uh, being beaten Five times, 39 lashes he received. He goes on and on and on and on about all the things he has suffered. He's very, very open about it. But I want you to see how he pitches all of that. How he starts the letter. Before he talks about those things, he's going to frame it all with a view of God. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. He's going to talk a lot about the troubles. A lot. More than any other letter. But he pitches it all against this backdrop of a God who is the father of compassion. He is actually the origin of it. Compassion comes from God. 
The very characteristic of compassion, if you ever see it in anybody, it is a characteristic of God. It is not something that humans think is good and just thought, let's act like this. It is part of God. And those who are acting in a compassionate manner are living life in his image. He's the father of compassion and he's the God of all comfort. He's the God of all comfort. Now those are words that have largely, again, in our culture, not got much weight because we hear them that much. And I don't mean to go mad in this, so don't be thinking that every sermon I ever do for the next six months is all going to be about words and studying words. But I think if you see this, it'll help you have the right posture with people who are suffering. So let's talk about the word compassion. Compassion. This is what it means. Calm. In Latin, calm means with. And passion means suffering. So the next time you approach somebody for a night of passion, just be careful what you wish for, all right? Calm means with, passion means suffering. You've heard of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. It is suffering. That's that's what the word literally means in Latin. And when we hear about God being the father of compassion, what we hear about is a God who is with us in suffering. That's what compassion means. It is not pity. Do not be thinking compassion and pity are the same thing. Pity says that's awful suffering and stops. Compassion says, I will be with you in that awful suffering. That's the difference. With you in suffering. That's who our God is. And when you read the Old Testament and you study out the Hebrew word for compassion, it is only ever used with reference to God. Never anyone else in the entire Old Testament. God is a God of compassion. It is used repeatedly of Jesus. Many times in the Gospels you will see that he is moved with compassion. And and the word in in Greek actually refers to your gut. You know, you hear people talking about a gut feeling or a gut reaction. This is where it comes from. The word compassion is that gut feeling that causes you to do something. And God is the father of all compassion. He is also the God of comfort. And again, the word means so much more than what we think. We think comfort and we think, you know, warmth and soft, fluffy things and all just cozy and snug. Not even remotely what the word means. The word means with you, bringing strength. Forte means strength. So comfort means I am with you bringing strength. And God is the God of compassion. He is the God of comfort. He comforts us. He does not answer all our questions. He does not offer solutions to all our problems. He doesn't offer clarity for all our mysteries. The idea of being comforted in trouble. Listen, the idea of being comforted in trouble involves the realization the trouble will continue. It's not the trouble's going to go away. It's I will be with you in the trouble bringing strength. I will be with you in the suffering. That's what the words mean. And we have this theology sometimes in the church in the West that has been labeled McDonald's theology because it's cheap and it's fast and it's unhealthy. This whole notion that we need to have all our problems immediately solved and it's got to be cheap, it's got to be quick, it's got to hit the spot. 
Just like when you literally, when you think about it, the concept of driving your car to a window and getting food and just driving off again. That is sin. Don't be doing that. That's not food. That's not what food is for. That is actually just plain old sin. Treating food like that. But we have this, talk to you after. We have this thing in, 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 our, in our belief system that we think God should be like the McDonald's window. We just pull the car up and say, right, I want this and I want it now and I'm in a rush. I need to be out of here in 30 seconds because if they go away and faff about somewhere else and we, we, we think God should remove all of our trouble and he doesn't. He comforts us. He doesn't take the problems away. Sometimes he does, but frequently he doesn't. He doesn't take the problem away. He comforts us in the problem. He doesn't, in Isaiah 43, he, he talks about going through the rivers he says, and going through the waters. He says, I'll be with you. He doesn't say you'll not go through it. He doesn't say I'll make it dry up. He says when you go through the fire, the flames won't burn you. He doesn't say I'll blow the fire out. It's his presence with us in those things. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we will have when we're suffering and that we bring to somebody else is, do we trust that God's presence in suffering is better than the absence of suffering. That's a difficult one to chew on. But do we trust him that his presence with us in suffering, in trouble, is better than the absence of trouble? But there's a purpose in this for Paul. We're not just talking here today about, about the, the, the compassion and the comfort we have received from God. We're talking about how to be a companion in suffering to other people. So Paul goes on, reading verse 3 again, or the end of it, he, he talks about the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that, so that, we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. There's a purpose. The comfort and the compassion that we experience from God, we then bring to others. And I love the way Paul uses this phrase occasionally in his letters. He says, I've received something and I'm giving it to you. Most common or the most... Familiar one for you probably will be in, in the context of the Lord's Supper. For, for what I received from the Lord, I now pass on to you. He has this attitude that what God gives us and what we encounter, and what we experience ourselves as individuals with God, we are then to bring to others. That we might then be with people in suffering. And that we might be with them bringing strength. But you've got to have received something if you're going to give it. This is important. This is back to the foundation of the house. And if you lean on it and there's no foundation, the house falls. If you don't have a history with God, you've nothing to bring to those who are suffering. Get that straight. If someone close to you is suddenly thrown into suffering, you won't have time to suddenly dig a deep well with God. You won't have time to suddenly put foundations under your house. If you don't have history with God, you're, lo you're lost at that moment. You've nothing. For what I have received from the Lord, now I give on to you. And, and for anyone who's not that familiar with suffering or with other people who are suffering, now's the time you dig the well. Now's the time you get out and lay the foundations because it will come and you need to have something you can draw on. In the word I mentioned at the start, 
this word companion. Um, I just love this word. <laughs> because what it, what it means, it's from Latin. <laughs> I won the cup for Latin in Kilkemain, just so you know. <laughs> it's the only cup I ever won for anything. <laughs> the most useless achievement ever. It's because there's only one did anything. Nobody else bothered with it. You okay back there? Um, what does calm mean? It means with. Now, I need to pronounce this next word carefully. Panis. The word panis in Latin. I didn't put it on the screen in case autocorrect did something with it. Panis means bread. In French, the word for bread is, is pan. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's actually spelled pain, which is another whole rabbit hole to run down. But companus means with bread. I will be with you sharing bread. That's what the word, come on, literally means. I will be with you sharing bread. When Paul says, or John says, I am your companion in suffering. He doesn't just say I'm your, your, your mate from a million miles away. He doesn't say I'll send you the old text message. He says, I'll be with you sharing bread. And you know, because I've told you again and again and again, that to be at a table with someone and to share bread with them is to share life with them. It's to invite them into relationship and into family. It's to invest time in them. It's not to drive up to a window and grab a packet of garbage and throw it in there as quick as you can. It's about taking hours, two hours, three hours, sitting at the table over food, talking and talking and talking. In your suffering, I'll be with you sharing bread. I will be with you in a manner that is the most intimate thing that a family can do, sitting around a table and sharing life, giving you time, investing, listening, speaking. A beautiful word. I was sitting with, with, with Eugene a few weeks ago in Starbucks in, in Antrim, chatting, and, uh, and I, was, I was telling him about this, and he immediately pulled out his notebook and said, I'm writing that down. This is what, this is what Bible teachers do when they get together. We know how to, how to have a good time. It's just a beautiful word. Companion. That's what friendship is. Do we really do friendship? Do we? Do we really? Because to, to share bread with somebody takes time. It takes time. It takes a sacrifice on your part. It's not going to be quick. Involves opening your home, going to someone else's home. Do you want to be a companion in suffering? It requires that depth of investment in people. And you know, the key word in all of this, won't take a genius to figure it out, but compassion, comfort, and companion all begin with calm. And it means with. The key thing about being a companion in suffering is that you are with, you are present. Not present with all the answers, not present with all the correct verses to quote at the right time from the right version, but present. You are with. The whole heart of God and the whole heart of the gospel is the incarnation. God with us. God made flesh. And the incarnation is not just about Christmas. We have this thing that the incarnation is this one-off event that happened in a stable in Bethlehem. And as soon as Mary lifted baby Jesus out of the manger, the incarnation was over. Let's move on to the next big word, which is whatever. 
The incarnation is now uh, an eternal reality. God is with us, incarnate, with us. It's a way then for us to live. We are to, to bring God to others. When we go into the situation of suffering, to be a companion of suffering is to bring his presence into that situation. And again, if you don't know it, you can't do it. And sometimes you do see people trying to do it and they've no track record with God. They've no history with God. And if it wasn't so serious, it would actually be laughable watching them trying to do it. Trying to suddenly bring something that they, <clears throat> excuse me, that they don't actually have. The presence of God living within them to bring to other people. Bringing the, the life and the wholeness of God into the brokenness and the hurt of other people's lives. You know, if the church would stop offering solutions and start just offering presence, comfort, compassion, companionship, stop trying to fix people and instead be with them. And in that being with them, believe that God is with them, that the incarnation is happening at that moment. Bring them your presence, and in that, bring them the presence of God, and ultimately bring them to Jesus. There's a guy in, um, in Mark chapter 2 who's paralyzed, and four of his mates bring him to Jesus. That's a beautiful picture of friendship. It's a picture of companionship in suffering. Because they lift him up, and when they can't get in the door, they won't stop, and they start pulling the roof apart, and they lower him down in. They are determined to bring him to Jesus. That's the posture you want to have if you want to be a companion in suffering. I don't know all the answers. I don't know how this ends. I don't know how to fix you. I'm not going to try to fix you, but I'm going to try to, I'm going to, not going to try, I'm going to bring you to Jesus. I'm going to bring you to Jesus. And two ways, just as a close, that you can bring people to Jesus. One is you can bring them to Jesus in Scripture. A few little pointers about using Scripture whenever you are ministering to people who are suffering. Please remember that the Bible is a presentation of God's work in the world with his people. And it is not a manual <clears throat> to solve people's problems. Every problem is not listed in the Bible. There's not a dictionary in the back where you can go through every possible thing that people will struggle with and find a verse to throw at them. And when we try to do that, we really get into difficult territory regarding how we handle the scriptures. We treat the Bible almost like a, like a, like a pharmacy, you know. We have this selection of medications, little verses that we can throw out in, in any particular time of need that we will throw at people. And it's almost like a software program. AI will be able to do this soon. Your AI, not, not your AI. Artificial intelligence. You know, soon enough, some, some Christian businessman will create a little device that you just set on your table and you just say, I'm feeling anxious. And it'll suddenly go, beep, be anxious for nothing. We do that with people. We throw verses at them like a, like a flipping machine with an input-output. They input how they feel, we output a verse. Just like prescribing medication to them. Here you go, sore head, take that, call me in the morning. Be anxious for nothing. As if suddenly, oh, the anxiety's gone. Just as you said that to me, it's all gone and everything's fine. Do not treat the scripture as, as, a, as a spiritual pharmacy. So just dump out these little phrases to people and then walk away. Because a machine can do that. Google can do that. Bookmarks in your Bible can do that. There's no presence. And if there's no presence, you're not actually being a companion in suffering. If you're not with, if you're not with, then you're not actually doing anything useful. So do 
Share God's word with people. But don't convince yourself that that in itself is suddenly going to fix everything. Beware of biblical idolatry that does not point to Jesus. I love this book. But you know what? If, if I get so absorbed in the book that I miss him, that I miss the author of the book, I'm in dangerous ground. And I think that's a condition in Northern Ireland. People will fight over the book. They'll talk about the book. They'll study the book. But as Jesus said in, in John 5, he said to the, to the religious people, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. All was in this book. I'm coming to him. And if I bring the word of God to other people, it is to bring them to him. It's to bring them to Jesus. It's not to just drop in a key verse. It's to bring them to Jesus. Because this book reveals who God is. Jesus did this himself in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. Before the guys realized who he was, Jesus went through the prophets and the law and the Old Testament and he talked about all of the things about him. And Philip learned to, to do the same thing. In Acts chapter 8, Philip's with the Ethiopian eunuch and this guy's sitting reading the scroll of Isaiah and Philip starts from where he is and goes to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, the art of preaching is picking a verse and then making a beeline to Jesus. Always the point of using the scriptures is to bring people to Jesus. Are we bringing them to Jesus or are we just trying to deploy a little painkiller verse that will bring a smile to their face and help them in the moment but ultimately not help them in the long term? And the other thing about using the word of God to, to help and to be a companion in suffering is that the Bible needs to be embodied in our character, not just in our words. If there are huge inconsistencies between your life and the word of God, I don't care what verse you think you've got for me. <laughs> I don't care. If there are huge inconsistencies between your life and the word of God, don't bring me a verse because it'll just bounce off me and hit the floor. If you want to be able to be a companion in suffering and bring the word of God to people in a way that brings them to Jesus, it's got to be embodied in your life. It's got to be real. It's, they've got to know that you live by it, that you're shaped by it, formed by it, that you make your decisions based on it, that you feed and nourish yourself on it, that it means something to you. Because if they don't know that, if you don't have, again, if you don't have history, you've nothing to bring. I walk into, there's a study lab at the back of my room in school, and I walk into it multiple times a day because they're always noisy. And frequently when I go into it, the kids will say to me, they're A-level kids in there, and they'll say, sir, did you do A-level physics? And I'd be like, yeah. And they say, can you help me with this? And I'd be like, no, <laughs> I've forgotten it. Did you do A-level maths? Yes, I taught it for three years. Can you help me with this? No, <laughs> I've forgot it. I don't sit down and pretend that I can explain some complicated A-level physics that I have forgotten 20 years ago. Longer. Um, but we sometimes do that with the Bible. We, we start wheeling out God's word to people, but we really don't know it ourselves. We really don't have a track record. We don't have a deep well to dig from. We just know a handful of helpful verses. And people can suss that out. They can sniff it out. And they'll just, they'll reject it because they know there's, there's nothing there. 
If you want to be a companion in suffering, you need to embody the word of God in your own life. And then you'll be able to bring people to Jesus through it. I think there should be a... We, we, we used to have a... This is probably inhumane, but we had one of those collars for the dog that gave it a wee zap if it, if it went across the, the, the boundary. Now, we only had to get zapped once or twice before it learned and never... Never went near the boundary. There's a wee beep about, about two meters before it got to the boundary. There's a little beep that would let the dog know that it's time to turn around. And, uh, and it worked very effectively, unless there was like a squirrel or something that it was chasing, and then it all went wrong. Um, but I, I think I want to design a, an electric shock collar that Christians have to wear. And whenever they go quoting verses from the Bible out of context, they get zapped. You know? it, it knows what they know. So, so somebody, somebody comes up to you and says, well, do you know what? In, in Jeremiah 29, 11, it says God knows. And then, you know, they start, they start shaking because the, the device knows that they're spoofing. That they don't have a track record. They don't have a history. Just be, when, that does nothing for people. It does nothing for them. It does nothing for them. Because they know it's not that real for you. And, and do you know what? If it, comes, if it comes electronically, it's nice to share verses electronically, but you know what? There's no presence. There's no presence. You should try it sometime. Um, next time you think about sending a verse to somebody, maybe just call with them for 10 minutes and say, listen, can I read this to you? And pray for you, and then I'll leave. I'll not stay for ages. I'll not bug you. I'll not, I'll not you know, stay for longer than you want me to, but I'd just love to be with you and read this to you. Because if there's no presence, we're not really being a companion. We're not bringing compassion. We're not bringing comfort because we're not with the person. And obviously in prayer as well, bring people to Jesus in prayer. Be careful how you pray for those who are suffering. Don't just ask for God to fix everything. Bring them to Jesus. I remember a conversation with, with, with Nigel one night and we, we were chatting with him and Linda and I and, and Alan and Helen and I can't remember what we were talking about but it was something that it was quite something that was just upsetting for, for me and Linda to talk about something that was bugging us or annoying us I can't remember what it was but we're just he could tell that it was that it was difficult for us and I can still see him just leaning across the table and saying let's bring that to Jesus I thought that's class let's bring that to Jesus not just let's let's get God to fix that not here five steps for you to fix that. Let's bring it to Jesus. That's a good posture to have with people. Um, I want to finish as well with just something. Um, I mentioned at the start that suffering happens in community. Put that up again. Um, I don't know who it was that shared this, but I have a, I have a rough feeling it was Helen who shared this um, maybe a year ago, maybe, maybe longer. Talking about footprints, you know the whole footprints thing, the whole um, two sets of footprints in the sand, and then whenever trouble times come, there's only one set of footprints. Do you know that, that, that whole thing? That's all really sweet. But whether it was Helen or somebody else, I'm convinced it was Helen, uh, the point that was made was that's not quite right. There shouldn't be only one set of footprints. The whole flipping beach should be a mess of footprints. Because when someone is suffering, it really should not be just Jesus carrying them on an empty beach. There should be companions all over the beach. And there should be footprints all over the beach. 
and the sand all churned up. I have this picture in my mind of, of just the sand all churned up all over the place because there's so many companions on the beach. Jesus might be the one with the arms out carrying, but there's just a whole... That's the church. That's beautiful. That's the church. Companions in suffering. And I know I haven't given you 101 steps, but hopefully I've given you a posture of heart and a position of presence that will actually help you to be with someone in suffering, to be with them bringing strength, to be with them sharing bread, investing time. Yeah? Let's pray.